I remember as a kid being in school and learning about uh, addition and subtraction and thinking, this is pretty easy. And then the teacher throws our first multiplication table at us and I'm going, what is this sorcery? I have to memorize this huge you know, conglomeration of numbers and how they, I, I don't know. I'm, I think that maybe I should just stop here. And that was about as much math as I ever mastered <laughs> in school. And then I come to realize that that's not where it stops. It gets harder. Then you get to things like algebra and they start trying to convince you that numbers have a place or letters have a place with numbers in math. And it's going, this is, makes no sense to me whatsoever. Where are things going? Things, math just totally went off the rails, right? Things escalated so quickly with math. And then I realized as a believer in Jesus that math is in the Bible. In fact, multiplication's in the Bible. I don't know if you realize this, but in the New Testament book of Romans in chapter five, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes specifically about multiplication. He says that where sin is multiplied, grace is multiplied all the more. Where sin multiplies, grace multiplies all the more. Well, today we're going to pick up our study of the beginning of everything from the book of Genesis at the beginning of your Bible in chapter 4. We left off last week at chapter 3 talking about the curse and the consequences of sin. And see right away now in chapter 4 how sin escalates very quickly. Things go totally off the rails. We call it the, not just the fall, but the fallout. But just when it seems like sin has multiplied to an place of no return grace multiplies all the more so look with me at genesis chapter 4 where we see sin multiplied i mean this is exactly what happens sin takes everything off the rails it escalates very quickly genesis 4 just to set this up is a contrast between the first two brothers uh, go figure that when you put brothers in the mix, that there's going to be a conflict and a contrast. It seems like every family that has siblings has two different, very different siblings, right? So here we have the very first two brothers. And the contrast in Genesis chapter 4 is showing us that there's a right way and a wrong way to live under God and with one another in this world. Now, the story begins in verse 1 with the birth of the first son, Cain, whose name means possession. Cain, that word means possession. And verse 1 sounds warm and fuzzy. And in some ways it is warm and fuzzy. But if you're looking at it in your Bible, you see that Eve also is asserting herself as the life giver. Now, that's her name, right? Just in, before in chapter 3, Adam had named Eve his wife, Eve, meaning the mother of all the living. And so when Eve becomes a mother, she says, Cain is my possession because I have given him life with the help of the Lord. Now, she says that the Lord is her helper and that she's asserting herself as the life giver. And so while it sounds warm and fuzzy, when you look at it this way, you think, wow, what's Eve doing here? It's as if Eve is now living in a direct contrast to how she was created by God as the helper or ally to the man. 
just like attempting to know and be like God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here we have Eve attempting to be like God, saying, I'm the one who's given the life. The Lord is my helper. A complete reversal. Okay, so I remember years ago, just to illustrate this, uh, it seems like a long time ago now, uh, former President Barack Obama, who made a comment in one of his uh, uh, interviews about how uh, small businesses in, in America depended on the federal government for their existence. Now, I don't know where you fall politically, and it doesn't really matter, but what happened in the United States when he said that was small businesses across the nation, they resounding, the resounding cry of small businesses was this mantra that came, it became like a hashtag. People were putting on banners in front of their businesses, and it was, I built this. Like, who is the president to say that we depend on the government for our small business? I built this. This is what Eve is saying to God in verse 1. Cain, my possession. I made this. I gave life to this. And God was my helper. A complete reversal. Then in verse 2, a younger brother is born. Abel, whose name implies that he's a, of considerably less worth than Eve's prized possession, Cain. Now, younger siblings everywhere, like I am as well, we can empathize with this, right? Sometimes it feels like we get the second best, the leftovers, the hand-me-downs. And this is sort of what Abel is in the story, contrasted with Cain. He's a younger sibling, and his name even means that he's, you know, he's just there. He's not worth that much, whereas Cain is the possession of Eve. Now, Their occupations also are contrasted here. Abel is sent out to shepherd the flocks of sheep, while Cain inherits his father's occupation of working the ground, of farming. That's the first example of a vocation being passed down from a father to a son, but I don't want you to miss this in it also, is that Abel was given the job that Adam was intended to have before sin entered the world. After sin and the curse, is when Adam became a farmer having to till the ground and work for his food. And that's the occupation that he handed down to his firstborn. So while we see this is the first example of a son inheriting their father's occupation, it's also a reminder that the curse of sin is passed from generation to generation. And this is just the way things are. So here's the story setting up this contrast of brothers And the contrast deepens in verses 3 through 5. So I want to read this for you. And the words will be on the screen for you as well if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you. But just starting here, this deepening of the contrast between these two brothers. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, but he looked despondent. Now, the contrast deepens, right? Two brothers, different names, different Uh, perceived values, different vocations, and now 
coming to the one true God who still reigns over all things though sin has entered the world with offerings that vary very differently. Both brothers brought an offering. So why would God reject one and regard the other? Here's why. Because what a person gives to God in worship reflects what they truly believe about God. In fact, if you look at the order of God's response, when he regards Abel in his offering but does not regard Cain in his offering, he first regards or does not regard the person. And secondly, the offering. The quality of worship speaks to the condition of the heart. This is a reality. God is looking on Abel with pleasure, with regard, because Abel offered God the best of his best, the firstlings, the fat portions, the really good stuff Abel brought joyfully to God, while Cain just offered some of what he had. So yes, both gave an offering, but there's a difference in how those offerings are received by God because they reflect what's truly in the person's heart. Think about this. If you had someone really important over for dinner this afternoon, uh, would you feed them yesterday's leftovers? Like cold broccoli and, you know, a, a, a tough pork chop from yesterday. Or would you think, uh, this is an important, I really want to give this person what they deserve. I really want to make a good impression. I really want to have, help them have a good experience yeah, that's true. You wouldn't serve them their leftovers probably unless you didn't like them <laughs> because it was a reflection of what's on the inside. God didn't delight in Cain or his offering because Cain's life didn't reflect the fact that he took any delight in God whatsoever. He just brought some of what he had. So there's an immediate application for us here. Right away we see this that the kind of worship you bring to God matters. If God is the highest authority and deserves to be our highest priority, does your worship reflect that reality? What are you bringing to God in worship? I heard this week about the difference uh, between the sacrifice a pig makes and the sacrifice a chicken makes for us to eat breakfast. Have you heard about this? One just makes a contribution while the other gives its all. Think about it. The egg and the bacon. One costs the pig everything. The chicken just makes a contribution. Are you willing to give your life as a sacrifice to God? Or are you content to make an occasional contribution and to go about your personal business. To God, anything less than our best is sin because it reveals the reality of something else competing for the highest rank in our lives. Does that step on your toes a little bit? It does mine. And it did Cain's. Cain was angry. Also, he looked despondent, depressed. 
He was angry probably toward Abel, but also toward God. How could you reject what I've offered you? And then he was sad. And think about the combination of sadness and anger. It really implies jealousy or envy. This is what happens when someone else gets something that you feel like you deserve or have earned. Sadness and anger become the competing voices in your head. Yeah, how could they get what they, what they got when I didn't get what I got? But then also, I still didn't get what I got, <laughs> or what I earned, or what I thought I deserved. Anger and sadness. And so in this, Cain not, has only not re- shown the reflection of what's truly in his heart, he's also being further removed from God in the way he's responding to God's reaction sin is multiplying the effect of sin is multiplying so how does God respond let's look at verses six and seven then the Lord said to Cain why are you furious why do you look despondent if you do what's right won't you be accepted but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at the door Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So the contrast, again, deepens. But God offers Cain a correction and a caution. I don't know if you remember the conversations we've had in Genesis talking about creation and how the the people receiving the book of Genesis uh, were not just receiving it in a vacuum, they were receiving it as neighbors to cultures who had these pagan gods that they worshiped. They were receiving it as people who had been enslaved in Egypt under the oppression of Egyptian Pharaoh who thought himself to be a god and who worshiped all kinds of other pagan deities. Well, in the ancient world, the pagan gods of Egypt or Babylon, they were merciless toward humanity regardless of humanity's offering back to them they were always merciless toward humanity yet here is Yahweh Israel's God offering to help a human who failed to bring an acceptable offering this is shockingly good news for the readers of Genesis that instead of uh, instead of smiting Cain Instead of saying blood for blood, you deserve to die, not just because of your first sin, but because of how sin is deepening in your heart, God offers him a correction and a caution. It's an act of grace that Cain ignores. Cain ignores it. He doesn't receive God's grace. Instead, he turns against God's grace by then turning against his brother with premeditated manslaughter in verse 8. This is the twist of the story. Cain not only is rejected by God, but then takes it out on his sibling. He kills Abel. Things are escalating quickly, right? Now what will God do? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is an echo of exactly one chapter before in chapter 3, verse 9. You might remember the 
first humans, Adam and Eve, had sinned against God. They'd eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and immediately shame came over them. They felt like they needed to cover themselves, and not only themselves, but they felt like they needed to hide from God. So they hid amongst the trees in the garden. And then verse 8, God comes walking. They hear the sound of God in the cool of the day, walking through the garden. They're afraid. They're hiding. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, God calls out to them, moving toward the sinners, where are you? And here again in chapter 4, we hear the same echo. God is moving towards the sinner again. Cain, where are you? Where is your brother Abel? And like his father Adam, Cain casts the blame on someone else. Except unlike his father, Cain refused to acknowledge his sin before God. Instead, he continued to shirk the responsibility. Sin, again, is multiplying. Now, God already knew, just like he knew where Adam and Eve were and was moving toward them, God already knew what Cain had done. This egregious sin of murdering his brother, he already knew exactly what he had done. But when he comes to Cain, he asks a question again, the same question he asks Eve in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Cain, what have you done? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Again, Cain has the opportunity to confess his sin. But instead, he tried to bury it. Literally tried to bury his sin. Now, what's the application here? It's that no sin can be hidden from God. The Cain and Abel story is not just what happened way back then. It's what always happens. And you and I are the same way. When we commit a sin against God or against someone else, the first inclination we have is to either hide our sin or hide ourselves from God, thinking that somehow maybe time will pass and things will just remedy themselves. But this is not how the world works. This is not how God works. God moves towards sinners. He says, where's your brother? Adam, where are you? Then he says, what have you done Abel's blood crying out to me from the ground. The all-knowing God, creator of all, sovereign over everything, moving towards sinners, not for condemnation, but again to extend grace, which Cain continues to reject. Cain continues to allow sin to multiply in his heart and in his life. And so judgment is spoken over him. Verses 11 and 12, just like God outlined the curse to the serpent and then to Eve and then to Adam in chapter 3, God outlines Cain's punishment in verse 11 and 12. It's an intensification of the curse that he placed on Adam. Not only is it going to be hard to work the ground to get the yield, it's actually going to be quite near impossible for you, Cain, because you continue to allow sin to multiply in you. And so this is going to be the consequence. And then even more than that, you won't even find ground that will continue to multiply for you. So you're going to have to move. You're going to become this restless wanderer, just wandering the earth, looking for the next plot of land that you can maybe work hard enough to get a yield from. All you have to do, Cain, is turn from this sin, acknowledge it, and confess it, yet Cain refuses to acknowledge it still. So he's driven out again. Just as Adam and Eve were driven out from the garden, 
Cain is dri- driven farther east to the land of Nod, destined to wander for the rest of his days, even farther from God than his parents. Now, this is a pattern that continues to multiply in verses 17 through 24. What we see here is the third generations of humans, the third generation of humans being born. Cain has children. What do you think happens? Sin multiplies. Now, other things multiply as well and advance in the world. In fact, in the third generation, we see technological advancements happening, uh, even at the speed of which is probably per capita a rival or exceeding the, the speed of technological advancements today. Like when we're talking about AI, we at least have a framework for technology. When Cain goes and builds a city and names it after his son, Enoch, It's the first time that the world has ever experienced anything like that. When his other sons end up, his other descendants end up playing music from instruments, it's the first time the world has experienced that. When they begin to make tools in order to farm and maybe weapons in order to harm, it's the first time the world has experienced that. And so all of a sudden, technology is advancing at an insane rate at the very beginning But what happens is as material things increase, morality continues to decrease. Sin begins and continues to multiply exponentially now. In fact, one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, is the quintessential example of sin multiplied. Lamech, if you read in verses 17 through 24, actually sings a song about how good of a sinner he is. Well, we come to church and we sing songs about how good God is and maybe you're convicted of the sin in our life. Lamech is quintessentially, quintessential example of sin multiplied, singing songs about how good of a sinner he is. He takes the sanctity of marriage and twists it by taking multiple wives. He takes the sanctity of life and trounces on it by extending on Cain's legacy of ruthless killing to the nth degree. If Cain was rescued from seven people because of a murder, Lamech would have to be rescued from 77 because his crimes are maybe 10 times worse than Cain's sin multiplying. Lamech shows pride, arrogance, complete autonomy from God. His sin is unacknowledged and unconfessed beginning from his father Cain multiplies exponentially from one generation to the next. This is the line. This is what happens. And ultimately, because of this, Cain's family tree vanishes. Well, why do we get his family tree in Genesis 4? Because just a few chapters in, from now in Genesis 7, God floods the earth because of families like Cain's and rids the earth of families like Cain's. So why would we get all these names and their vocations and these descriptions of them and their sin in chapter four if they're just gonna ultimately be wiped off the face of the earth? It's because we're setting up a contrast. There's a contrast between the way Cain lives and the way we ought to live a right way to live under God and with 
our fellow men and a wrong way to live under God and with our fellow men. Now, to set up the contrast, it's this time not with Abel, but a bigger contrast with an even younger brother, a new brother that comes into the mix in verse 25. But think about Eve as the story in chapter 4 wraps back around to Eve. Eve, the mother of all the living, ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the promise to her was certain death. I mean, that was God's consequence. You eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Certainly you'll die. Yet, here she is, still living and breathing. Still alive. The mother, in fact, of all the living, as she propagates children onto the earth, except that at the same time, she's watching the murder rate nearly equal the birth rate in her own family for seven generations. These are the generations of verse 17 through 24. Seven generations. Eve stands by and watches death after death after death. Death of the worst kind in her own family. And so, yes, she still had breath in herself, but her whole life was characterized by death because this is what sin does as it multiplies. So chapter four is painted a pretty dark picture. As sin multiplies, things are getting worse and worse and worse. But while the world was getting darker and it seemed like the little bits of God's grace that we've seen are being snuffed out, God breaks through with the light of his grace. Remember Romans chapter five, verse 20, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied all the more? We're about to see the grace. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says this, Adam was intimate with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth, another younger brother, to take the place of Abel, then has children of his own, which by the way, makes Cain the first crazy uncle. So at Thanksgiving this week, when the crazy uncle comes to town, you can remember Genesis chapter four. But contrast verse one with verse 25, because Eve is having another child. Remember when she had Cain? It said that, I got this. I earned this. I made this. Contrast with verse 25, God gave this. How, how about this? Contrast verse one where it says, a male child. Just generic, like Adam, from the dirt of my doing. Contrast with verse 25, it says, offspring. Or another way to translate that is seed which ought to remind you of Genesis chapter three, where the promise of God in the midst of the curse of the serpent is that the woman's 
offspring or seed would be struck in the heel by the serpent, yet at the same time crushing the head of the serpent. And so what we see in verse 25 is hope restored for life once more. This third son born to Adam and Eve, his name is Seth because God gave him to them. That's what his name means. Eve even acknowledges the sin that Cain could never admit to. Why would she dig up the past like this? This was seven generations ago. Why would Eve say, yeah, this is son is to replace Abel because Cain killed him. It's because in this reality, she found hope for the future. Verse 26 says, from Seth's lineage, people began to call on the name of God. They called on the name of the Lord. They called out to God. This is a Hebrew way of saying that they are now a family of worship toward God. They're a family who's dedicating their lives to offering to God rightly what is best, to giving their whole selves to him in direct contrast to Cain. Just like Abel's offering, right? Abel was the first one to bring an acceptable sacrifice to God as a form of worship. Now there's an entire family tree that is set apart for the worship of God rather than rebelling against him. It's all in the hope that God would restore once again the promise of eternal life, not just through Seth, but through one of Seth's descendants. A promised future son mentioned in chapter three, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Another promised son who would faithfully shepherd his flock and offer his very life as a sacrifice to God, who also, like Abel, would be brutally murdered by his brothers and have his innocent blood shed in offering himself to God on a Roman cross. His name is Jesus. And while his enemies thought that killing him would silence him as his blood poured out and soaked into the hill of Golgotha, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says this, that Jesus would not be silenced. Instead, Jesus's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood, who cried out to Cain, guilty, is now made even better in Jesus' blood, who cries out, forgiven to us. This is why Genesis 4 is in our Bible. Because there's a right way to live under God and with one another. And that is to give our lives and worship to him, to the one true God, fully and completely in the same way that he gave himself to us, fully and completely that we might be restored in relationship to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So it all goes back to the offering. What kind of offering do you give to God in worship with your life if you claim to know Jesus? Is it an acceptable offering? So what does Genesis 4 have to do with you? Sin doesn't have to be your life story. Separation from God doesn't have to be your life story as it was for Cain. 
See, because of Jesus, who's the better able, we must respond to God's gracious correction by repenting from sin and returning to a true heart of worship. We offer our very lives to God because that's what he did for us and because he is the only king forever. It's our only hope in life and death. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. So what does it have to do with you? You know Jesus is your Lord and Savior? That's the first step, faith in Jesus. Because Genesis 4 points to the better Abel in Jesus Christ. But secondly, if you know Jesus already, don't be a chicken. Don't be like the chicken who comes to a life of worship with an, ed, an occasional contribution. Be a pig. <laughs> you know what comes with being a pig? Coming from the muck. Coming from the mire. The mud. The mess. Giving your all and your best to the Lord in all things starts with acknowledging the mess you came from being honest about your sin before a holy God, not in condemnation, but in forgiveness to find wholeness and completeness and grace. Giving your, your best to God means acknowledging your worst before him. As Psalm 103 says, he redeems your life from the pit. This is grace multiplied all the more. This is good, good news. So how can you do that? The response today is gonna to be an opportunity to be a pig, to confess where you came from. Some of you need to confess where you came from in order to place your faith in Jesus and to say, Jesus, forgive me of all of that that I'm trusting in your death and resurrection to give me the forgiveness and new life I need to live eternally with God from this point forward. Boy, that's the best news you can respond to today. Maybe you already know Jesus, yet you've returned to the muck. There's grace for you multiplied all the more. If you'll be honest and receive his correction, turn from your sin, and experience his grace. So acknowledge those things before him. I want to put on the screen just some things that you might acknowledge before God that come straight out of Genesis chapter 4. You might be convicted today, as Cain's toes were stepped on also, that you've been offering less than your best to God. Or maybe as ultimately it happened to Cain, that as you are convicted and confronted with that, that you respond in anger toward God. Maybe you're angry with God about something else and you need to confess that to him and make that right with him. Maybe you are showing anger or bitterness or jealousy or envy towards someone else in your life, which by the way is another form of murder. It may not be physical, but it certainly is emotional and spiritual. What if there's just another sin that has such a grip on you that you have a hard time acknowledging it and turning from it? You can do that today. 
Maybe you've just tried to live life on your own. We saw this beginning in Adam and Eve, multiplied in Cain and even further in Lamech, that the pride of life is autonomy from God and you need to return to dependence on him. Maybe, maybe you have lived the sin that was passed down from your parents and it's time to turn away from it, to acknowledge it and to leave it behind. There's grace all the more for you today. I want to lead us in a brief prayer. We're going to give you a chance to respond through song and then we're going to conclude today with a brief Lord's Supper experience together as a church. So pray with me as we move toward that and begin to confess your own sin to the Lord. God, thank you for the example of Cain that might stir in us the need to respond to your correction. Help us confess our sin to you, Lord. Give us strength to acknowledge the mess of life so that we can grab onto you who pulls us up out of the pit, redeems our lives, and sets us on a new path as a new creation where the old is gone and the new is coming. God, we pray for your courage in our lives today, for your grace in our lives, that we would leave this place free from sin into the fullness of life that Jesus offers through his blood. And God, our act of worship in the Lord's Supper in a moment as a remembrance what Jesus did for us, make that truth sink deeply into our hearts so we would carry it forward and that our lives would change because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.